electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, more than 70 CEOs have spoken out against Georgia's controversial voting law, including leaders of Delta and Coca-Cola. But Arkansas's Republican Senator Tom Cotton says they should mind their own business. What's not right is to have these moral corporate hypocrites weighing in on public policies when they don't have any specific knowledge about them. They haven't taken the time to inform themselves about the facts. Four million shots in arms in just a day. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on What Now? If you're vaccinated and you're going out in a high prevalence environment where there's a lot of infection, still be careful. Those stories, plus a global corporate tax minimum and the next chapter of the GameStop saga, a pitch for more cash that could make all the difference. Does this give investors even more confidence that somehow they can take this cash, go from being the blockbuster, if you will, to being the Netflix? It's Monday, April 5th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Morgan Brennan, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Steve Leisman. Becky and Joe are off today. First up today on the podcast, a blowout jobs report on the Good Friday market holiday has investors looking up. The Labor Department reported Friday morning that the economy created 916,000 jobs in March, the highest since August. The unemployment rate fell to 6%. This is good news. Vaccination rates are creeping up. States are loosening public health restrictions. And stimulus money is starting to flood into the economy. So investors are optimistic. Andrew asked this morning's guest anchors what data points they are watching in our daily menu inspired by a fresh plate of pancakes, the Squawk Stack. So we've got our our stack. Um, I'm curious what you guys think this morning. Uh, We we now get to mix up the stack uh, every morning, depending on what's in the news. Uh, Tesla in the mix right now after reporting better than expected delivery numbers. Steve, do you have, uh, uh, Morgan, do you guys have something we should be throwing in here? I'd put, if Major League Baseball was a public company, you might put it on this list. (laughs) You could also put Facebook in the stack there. And the two-year note is one thing I'm watching, guys, which is uh, at 19, one of the highest we've had since June coming off of that jobs report. So that's one thing that I was, uh, that, that I've been following. Um, and, and look, uh, it looks like you can have, uh, you know, when I look at the stack and take, you know, try to get the deeper meaning of the stack, Andrew, it's you can have higher yields, better jobs numbers, and also higher stock prices. Mm. I'll throw crude oil into the stack, too, because we're seeing crude, we're seeing energy prices under pressure <clears throat> this morning after that OPEC plus meeting that happened last week as well. Um, I think a little bit unexpected, the fact that uh, the members of OPEC plus Russia uh, basically suggested that they're going to ease those output curbs we've seen in place, which I think, once again, and I know, Steve, you've been watching this so closely, really signals uh, economic recovery, not only here in the U.S., but globally, uh, and that the fact that that's really starting to take shape, even if the U.S. is right now leading the world, given the fact that we are ramping up the pace of vaccinations and other places like Europe are, you know, still further behind, given some of the restrictions we see in place there. I wish I had pancakes, though. I got to tell you right now, that's just my personal feeling. 
Uh, the, the, yeah. the stack is nice, but a thing of pancakes would be really good. CNBC has learned the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will call for a global minimum corporate tax. She'll say the U.S. is going to work with G20 nations to establish this global minimum corporate tax and says it's necessary to ensure countries have stable finances and have money to invest in uh, uh, vital infrastructure and to address crises. Andrew, uh, as you know, this administration is not a big fan of tax competition, either between states or between countries. Andrew? So, Steve, just real quick, help us understand this. Do you think that she will succeed in getting all G20 to agree to to agree effectively to uh, a minimum tax across the board? It would end the idea of inversions and all of the issues that we've we've talked about all over these years. But it would also end competition. And I assume that there's going to be countries that are going to say, I want that competition because I want to be able to bring companies to my country based on my tax rate. I, I think it may depend. I first of all, I think it's going to be difficult at any number. But if the number is sufficiently low uh, and there's some incentive for countries to agree to it, yeah, you could have a global minimum tax at 3% or 4% or 5%. The question is whether or not the U.S. can create a global minimum tax at a place that is advantageous to the U.S., and that's going to be up near 20%. A place advantageous to the U.S. as we look to raise the corporate tax rate here to fund things like infrastructure spending, keeping in mind the fact that the right. tax reforms and, and the lower corporate tax that was imposed back in 2017 actually led quite a number of other countries, developed countries, to lower their tax rates as well, which essentially, Steve, I would imagine may be a very big ask when that would mean a higher tax rate for those countries and all the politics that that involves there as well. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's a fluid situation. Yeah. Here's the problem, Morgan. If you think about like, I don't know, what's the what's your favorite hotel? Right. Is it I don't know. Is it the W? Whatever it is. Um, w can never bring down its rate low enough if you're the W to be under Motel 6. Yeah. Right. Motel right. 6 will always if you go to 100 bucks a room at the W you know, Motel 6, and by the way, nothing wrong with Motel 6, clean sheets, nice rooms, whatever. They're going to be at 50. And if, 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 if W goes to 50, then Motel 6 got to go to 25. So that's always going to be an issue yeah. globally. You're going to have to rotate around the market leader. So I, I, I think, you know, Andrew asked that question, can it happen? I don't know. It's going to be very difficult because a lot of countries have plenty of incentive to try to put up a vacancy sign for companies around the world. Right. I like this metaphor. Makes me want to go book my next vacation. I'm ready. Don't we all? <laughs> We've got some news. This may be, this is big news, folks. I don't know if you saw this. Just happening, crossing the tape, GameStop uh, announcing that it plans to sell up to 3.5 million shares. We have been waiting for this moment in many ways, and I know a lot of investors have been waiting for this moment to happen um, for a very, very long time, given the run-up in the stock, which uh, is... By the way, right now at about $170 a share, uh, the company, as we just said, planning to uh, planning to sell as many as 3.5 million shares. Uh, before it was at about 190 bucks, but we can do it at 100, 170 bucks a share, and uh, you're going to be looking at um, you're going to be looking at a sale close to about 600 million dollars. It's not the three billion dollars that some people had expected, and of course, what they do with this cash becomes uh, the 
the million or billion dollar question for the future of this company. Um, can they make that digital transition? That's always been the question. Uh, they didn't sell when, of course, the shares were uh, in, this, in the true stratosphere, though I know there, there are investors who think it's in the stratosphere now. And then, of course, the big question is, does this pop the bubble if you believe there was a bubble here? Or does this give investors even more confidence that somehow they can take this cash and move uh, to a, a new world, go from being the blockbuster, if you will, to being the Netflix? That, of course, uh, is the question. We're going to watch to see uh, how investors react. Of course, when Viacom sold uh, sold shares at $85. The shares, of course, plummeted because there was an investor demand. We'll see whether there's an, enough investor demand for this offering, guys. But uh, fascinating yeah, this just took place. Th- th- doesn't this just compound the misallocation of capital that was created by this whole topsy-turvy GameStop situation where um, the, the share price rose because of the large short position? Right. And, and that created this flood of capital to GameStop. And here they are with an ability, because of this high share price created by that right. short position, to now issue more capital. Um, it just strikes me as a, as a compounding of the misallocation that's happened because of, I don't know, some, some crazy sort of trading that's going on that makes no sense if you're thinking about efficient market theory. So I'm going to agree and disagree in the following, in the following way if I could. I think the initial run-up in the stock that we saw in January um, and February was a a function of very clever, smart, both retail investors and hedge funds seeing the short interest and using that to create a flywheel effectively for themselves by creating a short squeeze that pushed the stock up. And then, of course, it came down. Yeah. I don't know if today the stock at $170 is a function per se of the short interest and creating that flywheel. I don't want to claim it's fundamentals either because clearly the fundamentals are, are complicated and difficult. But I think it may be at a bit of a different place uh, with perhaps a, just a group of, of either believers or speculators or I don't know what you want to describe yeah. them. And of course, there's still a lot of short interest in the company. But... Um, I don't know, but I, I agree with you in terms of in, in terms of this but, issue but of, Andrew, of what's, trying to what's have a fishing great money. idea. What what's the great idea that needs six hundred million dollars right now that GameStop is pursuing? When I, I mean, I read the prospectus very very quickly. It said uh, right. sure, but it's I, balance sheet and it's transition. Well, what's the great idea that needs a million dollars six hundred times? I don't think it's a great idea as much as it's a, a great person, or at least that's kind of what initially started. I mean, we could talk about the short interest, but what really started to generate buzz on, on the retail side. And among some of those hedge funds that did go long on this name, um, the end of last year and beginning of this year was Ryan Cohen, right? From Chewy right. co-founder, Chewy founder, um, seen as somebody who was able to crack the e-commerce puzzle, at least where uh, pet food was concerned and thwart the likes of Amazon. And I think there's this belief that with him involved in the company, with the fact that there's this broader C-suite shakeup that is afoot right now, the shift to digital, uh, which you can argue is long overdue. And yes, this is kind of separate from fundamentals, but it, in some ways it's more of a personality driven story at this point, um, above and beyond all the Reddit mania that we saw earlier in the year. And also, I would yeah. just argue that it's to your point, Andrew, in some ways for GameStop, looking where the shares are, are trading right now, it is about time. Obviously, they had been uh, tied up with their, with their earnings and the fact that they were in a quiet period. But if you look at another company like AMC that has seen a similar share run up, 
Um, right. They were able to really make the most of that situation and raise the capital that they need to make their investments. Uh, you can argue the same thing is finally starting to happen here in GameStop, whether it works or not, how this ultimately looks and shakes out and what it means for the share price is obviously a different discussion. Steve, just so you know, I don't think you're wrong. I think yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of people out there that are very, very, very skeptical uh, that this is going to work. But I also think Morgan is right insofar as there are a group of investors that believe in Ryan. They saw him do this with pet food, an industry that was not supposed to be able to make the transition. Right. Because the view was that pet food was too heavy. It was it was going to be expensive to ship. People weren't going to uh, going to do that online. And, and he somehow Uh, made it work. And there's a view that he's going to do it again. Whether he does or not, we'll have to see. An update now on the backlash to Georgia's new voting rights law on Friday. Major League Baseball announcing that it was going to pull the 2021 All-Star Game from Atlanta. Uh, The new law was denounced by business executives across the United States last week. Some of that actually began right here on Squawk Box with Ken Chenault and Ken Frazier, leading 72 other black executives uh, calling uh, the, that law out. So this is not a partisan issue. If one party has decided to adopt voter suppression in the absence of substantiated evidence of voter fraud as its strategy, then I think we have to oppose it and not allow people to say, well, now you're just a partisan. Meantime, voter ID requirements for absentee ballots, limit drop boxes and limits on drop boxes, uh, giving more states officials more authority over how elections are conducted. Uh, all of that happened on Saturday. Uh, the governor, Governor Brian uh, Kemp, criticized the decision, though, from Major League Baseball. Here's what he had to say. Georgians and all Americans should know what this decision means. It means cancel culture and partisan activists are coming for your business. They're coming for your game or event in your hometown. And they're coming to cancel everything from sports to how you make a living. And they will stop at nothing to silence all of us. In coming days, we're going to have a conversation about all of this with Tom Cotton, uh, Senator Tom Cotton, who uh, actually tweeted at us uh, right after uh, Ed Bastian um, and uh, several other leaders in Georgia spoke out against the law, uh, saying, let's go have the debate on squawk. So we're going to have that debate on Squawk, but of course, a contentious and controversial issue. A lot of business leaders grappling uh, with it. Um, And uh, we are seeing politics and business once again mix. Coming up, that discussion with Senator Tom Cotton. What is the evidence that there was a problem that triggered what is now 330 ballot restriction initiatives in 43 states? You have to show an ID every time you get on an airplane at Delta. You have to show an ID to get a ticket at Major League Baseball's will call offices. Again, this is just an example of them buying into left-wing smears against Georgia without a basis in fact. Squawk Pod, back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. 
Major League Baseball uh, moving this year's All-Star Game and draft out of Atlanta. It's the latest and so far a most impactful move by an organization in response to Georgia's controversial new voting law, which uh, many claim disenfranchises black voters. Joining us right now to talk about Georgia's voting law, business, politics, and the intersection of all three is Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. Uh, we should mention on Wednesday last week, Senator Cotton tweeted out, now that all these ill-informed CEOs are smearing Georgia with left-wing lies about its new election law, I welcome any of them to debate me. I'll do it on Squawk Box so they can have a home field advantage. How about it, Ed Bastian, Larry Fink? And he tagged Delta and BlackRock. Uh, neither of them are here, Senator, uh, so you are stuck with me. Uh, but uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, I see that uh, none of these ill-informed, politically correct CEOs were willing to come on your prestigious show to debate me this morning, to get into the details of this law, since most of them have only been speaking in vague generalities, pressured by the far left to condemn well, Georgia Senator, unfairly well, and without reasonable basis. Senator, let, let's talk about that, though, because because clearly uh, there are now dozens of companies that have spoken out against this law. And I think the big question is whether the Republican Party is effectively pushing business, which was uh, clearly an ally for so very long, into the hands of Democrats. Well, it's not a question for me. I mean, the people we represent are the workers and the families in our communities across the country. Sometimes businesses are right, sometimes they're wrong. But CEOs that run airlines or pharmaceutical companies or credit card companies or sports leagues aren't really experts when it comes to voting laws. And that's been made perfectly clear over the last week. Their attacks on Georgia's voting law are ill-informed. They don't have a basis in fact. Delta even praised the law before they flip-flopped and then started attacking it under pressure from the left. Senator, let's talk about some of the details just, just, to, just to educate the audience, because I, I, I accept that there are elements of the law which on the face uh, look helpful to expanding uh, access. But at the same time, when you get into the details, in fact, there are lots of issues and I think that business is looking and seeing those issues, and that's why they're speaking out. Let me give you an example. Uh, for example, 94 drop boxes across the four counties that make up the core of metropolitan Atlanta, uh, which represent, which I should say, it, uh, is where the majority of, of, of black voters in the state live and, in fact, is considered a, a Democrat-weighted uh, uh, area. Uh, they had 94 drop boxes. It goes down to 23. I think that's just a very clear example as one example of the problems that this law creates. No, no, not at all, Andrew. Drop boxes were a recent and emergency addition last year at the height of a pandemic. Many states added them by executive fiat or court order, but they are not some longstanding practice of American election law. This bill, though, actually expands the use of drop boxes by mandating that county use them no fewer than one per 100,000 persons. Now, voters can also go into the clerk's office or their local registrar's office and drop off their ballot. Of course, they can put their ballot in the mailbox outside their home at any time up until the designated period ends. I would also point out that Joe Biden's home state, Delaware, only has five drop boxes for the entire state. Is Joe Biden going to condemn Delaware as passing a Jim Crow 2 law? What about New York State? New York State does not use drop boxes at all. Is Rob Manford going to move Major League Baseball's headquarters out of downtown Manhattan? Somehow I doubt it, Andrew. But, but Senator, I think the, the larger issues, and we can debate 
uh, you know, w- which state does it better. But but clearly in the state of Georgia and frankly, across the country, we now have states that are ra- that, that are that are introducing bills that almost by default, if you look at them really closely, do limit voting and especially uh, for, for for people of color. And I, I raised the issue. We had Ken Chenault and, uh, and Ken Frazier on this program, 72 uh, very senior black executives coming out historically for the very first time, effectively calling out a law and calling out their peers. Why would they feel this way otherwise? Yeah, I read their letter and I saw their interview. Again, it was ill-informed. It didn't cite specific provisions of the law that were somehow designed to suppress voting. I mean, one commonly cited uh, feature is that you now have to use information from your driver's license or uh, personal identification card on your absentee balloting. That's an improvement over signature verification, which can be arbitrary and difficult for uh, election volunteers to do. Uh, I also note that you have to get, show an ID every time you get on an airplane at Delta. You have to show an ID to get a ticket at Major League Baseball's will call offices. Again, this is just an example of them buying into left-wing smears against Georgia without a basis in fact. But in terms of, in terms of the smear, let, let me ask you this, because I think it's probably the biggest issue, and, and Ed Bastian called it a lie, which is to say, what is the evidence that there was a problem that triggered what is now 330 ballot restriction initiatives in 43 states. I mean, that that's the ultimate the ultimate question. And I don't believe there was a court case that ruled in favor or even suggestive that there was ultimately a problem. Well, Andrew, what Governor Kemp in Georgia has explained is their elections had a lot of problems last year in terms of inefficiencies and delays and so forth. And it wasn't just on November 3rd. Look at their primaries in the summer as well. They had lines in which voters were waiting for hours. Governor Kemp has said that's not acceptable to him and it shouldn't be to normal voters. What this law is designed to do is to make sure that their elections are streamlined and efficient, that voters have convenient, accessible voting options, and that those options are safe and secure. I mean, for Ed Bastian and James Quincy at Coca-Cola to get up on their moral high horse, when, for instance, Coca-Cola is lobbying behind the scenes in Congress against a slave labor bill for China's religious minorities, or Delta partners with a Chinese Communist Party-owned airline really is the height of moral hypocrisy. Senator Cotton, you talked about there being long lines in Georgia, and yet one of the most criticized parts of the Georgia bill is one that makes it a misdemeanor in order to, if you serve water to people standing in line. What, what do you find the justification for that is? Literally every state in the Union, Steve, has laws that prevent people from approaching voters in line. The idea is to prevent campaigns and parties from trying to campaign right next to a polling place to even coerce and intimidate. New York State, for instance, prohibits the provision of voter or uh, food or drink to voters who are in line. Now, the law does say explicitly that campaign workers, that poll officials, can provide water to people who are in line. But this is a very common practice all across the country. Moreover, the entire point of the law, as I explained, was to streamline these elections in Georgia, make them more efficient, so you don't have the kind of long lines that you saw last year, not just on November 3rd, but in the summer. That's exactly what it's going to do. Seizing on the practice that is common across across states all around the country about approaching voters who are in line is just another example of how the left is smearing Georgia and these ill-informed CEOs are just buying it hook, line, and sinker because they don't want to be protested, they don't want to be boycotted, they don't want their little social justice warriors with their newly minted Ivy League MBAs rising up in their corporate headquarters. Yeah, I think you just touched on this a little bit, Senator Cotton, but um, whether it's 
the voting laws discussion that we're having now, looking at, at Georgia and some of the other states, whether it's the protests we saw last summer, in general, we have seen basically this paradigm shift in the way that corporate America is now um, going from neutral to being very outspoken um, about social and, and socioeconomic issues, for better or for worse. Why do you think CEOs of these companies that are taking a stand believe this is good business? I think they're afraid of left-wing attacks, and they're afraid of being attacked on cable news and in the newspapers uh, that they read. Um, they're worried about, again, uh, the very activist, young social justice warriors they have working in their corporate headquarters. But I can tell you, these CEOs do not speak for their entire workforce. I've literally encountered hundreds, hundreds of gate agents and baggage handlers and pilots and flight attendants for Delta, for instance, during my time in public life, who have thanked me for the work I'm doing in the Congress and said they support Donald Trump. So I'd encourage all of those conservative and Republican employees who work in Delta's workforce or Coca-Cola's workforce to be more active themselves. You should send emails to your CEO the way the media reports suggest all of these left-wing employees were doing so. Encourage them to stick to running an airline or selling sugary beverages to Americans. You have, uh, you have, have uh, been a recipient uh, of, of money uh, over the years from many of the same companies uh, that are now uh, speaking out publicly against these laws. Uh, how, do you, how do you square that? I'm thinking of Bank of America. I'm thinking of Walmart. I'm thinking of Paul Weiss, a law firm which has now made a, a big uh, effort to actually fight these laws across the country. Oh, it's very simple, Andrew. I don't endorse my donor's agenda. They endorse my agenda. And they know that when they contribute to me, whether it's $5 or $5,000, that I'm going to do what's right for Arkansas and what's right for America. And what's right for America is to have safe, convenient, accessible elections. That's exactly what this Georgia law has done. What's not right is to have these moral corporate hypocrites weighing in on public policies when they don't have any specific knowledge about them, they don't have any particular expertise, and they haven't taken the time to inform themselves about the facts. Senator, while we have you here, wanted to get you uh, get, get your thoughts on a couple other uh, big headlines this morning. Janet Yellen uh, proposing a, a global, uh, if you will, um, AMT for corporations. Do you think that's going to happen? Well, we'll see what she says later today. But uh, I would just note to some of these corporate CEOs who run to Capitol Hill and lobby Republicans privately to pre protect them from Joe Biden's tax policies and his regulatory policies that if you want Joe Biden's election laws, you might wind up with Joe Biden's tax laws as well. Uh, Sen Senator Cotton, I I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, just a second here. Uh, after what you said, I went up and looked up the Georgia law. It says nothing about providing uh, uh, only uh, political organizations. providing. It says no person shall provide food and water to a person standing in line. So I just want to make sure that, that my understanding is correct here, that it's not banning political groups. It's no person at all. Yes, Steve, no person can approach a voter in line within a certain proximity of the polling place. That's very common in states around the country. But poll workers can, or officials at the polling site can provide water, whether it's a water fountain or, say, a Gatorade jug or so forth. So no one's going to be standing in line without access to water. And the whole point of the law is to make sure that no one is standing in line long enough to need water in the first place. Senator, I, I want to go back to the, um, we were just talking about corporate tax rate uh, and the fact that that's proposed to, to increase now with this infrastructure spending bill. In terms of the infrastructure bill itself, what would it take for you to, to get on board? Are you on board? No, I'm not on board. This bill is a Trojan horse for major tax hikes on America's workers and families. 
it spends more money on things like electric vehicles than it does on roads and bridges and ports and airports. Would you do a skinnier um, bill? There is a way to pa- there- yeah, there is a way to pass an infrastructure bill. I would remind everyone that the reason why we're working on an infrastructure bill this year is the last one was passed in 2015. It expires this year. It was passed in 2015 with more than 80 votes, in no small part because it didn't have tax increases. And it focused on some of the real problems with our infrastructure system, which is too much red tape and the permitting and regulatory approvals we need. So as some of my Republican colleagues have said, we'd be happy to sit down and work with the Democrats on trying to find a bipartisan compromise. But if they just want to smuggle in their longstanding liberal wishes and add a bunch of tax increases on top of it, I don't think you're going to get much Republican support. Senator, in terms of corporate taxes, is is there a rate, an increased rate that you would support? Would you go to 25? I know, I I doubt you'd go to 28. I I think coming, so so Andrew, I think coming coming out of an economic crisis in which we're still trying to get the economy back up on its feet is not the right time to be raising taxes at all. And as you all know, when you raise uh, taxes on businesses, those businesses end up passing along a lot of those costs to consumers in the form of higher uh, prices, or it depresses wages for their workers. And when we still have millions of Americans out of work, I don't think that's the right step to take at this time. Okay. Uh, Senator Cotton, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, next time, uh, we'll, we'll try to bring a, a CEO on to, uh, to, to, to increase the level of debate. But uh, we appreciate uh, your time this morning. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you all. Next, COVID cases going up, and so are vaccinations. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the state of the pandemic as summer nears. I would explain the um, the upsurges that we're seeing, that this is a combination of the factors that I laid out, the variants, the seasonal effect, the schools reopening, people moving around more. And I don't think it's going to be the start of a true fourth wave. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along not with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan, but with uh, Morgan and Steve this morning. It's great to have them uh, along for uh, hopefully. Well, so far, it's been a fabulous ride, and I'm sure the ride will get even better. We've got a lot of news. Johnson & Johnson is taking charge of a plant that ruined 15 million doses of its COVID vaccine. The move was facilitated by the U.S. government. It requires AstraZeneca to stop using that facility. Several weeks ago, workers at the Emergent Biosolutions plant mixed up ingredients for the two vaccines being produced there. AstraZeneca's vaccine has not been approved in the United States. That company says it will work with the Biden administration to find an alternative site to produce its vaccine. Andrew, uh, really an extraordinary move by the U.S. government, but at a time where supplies are ramping, and obviously there is this push from the White House to see those supplies ramp even further, the distribution uh, to continue to climb, even as we're seeing those numbers uh, at record highs over the weekends in terms of how many people got shots in their arms. Uh, It's really quite notable. It's fascinating to see what happened with with this plant and also fascinating to see just how fast the government has moved uh, to, to deal with this in ways that, frankly, the government wasn't uh, willing to move or appeared to be willing to move on so many other issues 
uh, over, over the past year when it comes to this kind of stuff. Steve? Yeah, well, good intro there. In his latest op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Dr. Scott Gottlieb discusses the idea of treating the virus with a pill. Dr. Gottlieb joins us now. He's the former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. Also sits on the board of Pfizer and Illumina. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, I just want to start with a personal note here. I got my second shot this past week. Um, I felt when I got the shot a little bit like you feel after you vote and after you leave the doctor's office with a clean bill of health. Though the next day I was a little wiped out, but I'm fine since then. We're really doing this at a pretty rapid rate, aren't we? We are. We're going to see some really big numbers put up probably this week in terms of the number of people being vaccinated on a daily basis. And that's going to be a combination of the fact that there's a lot more supply coming into the market and there's going to be a lot of demand coming into the market. Now the states are opening it up to younger people, people over the age of 16. You're going to see a surge of demand coming into the market. So those appointments are going to get filled. I think as we get into the later part of April and into May, probably the demand is going to slow down a little bit. We'll, we'll have worked off that really intense demand. But there's this lot of supply coming into the market. So I wouldn't be surprised over the next two weeks if we hit days we vaccinate about 5 million people a day. Wow. You know, I just want to bring you into another conversation we're having, which is this is, a, I mean, the J&J mess up at that manufacturing plant notwithstanding. It's a good example of how you can bring the private sector together with the government. I know not every state government is perfect, but certainly the numbers suggest that this this business government combination is doing what it should be getting the rolling the vaccine out. Well, I think the government did the right thing in terms of the supervision that they're applying. This was a mistake made by Emergent, not by Johnson & Johnson. And lots do get lost in manufacturing of biologics. Okay. So it's not that unusual to see a lot get lost. There's a lot of scrutiny, obviously, on the manufacturing of the vaccine. So each each time there's a mistake, it's getting um, noticed by the general public. I think what this you know demonstrates is we don't have a lot of reserve manufacturing capacity here in the United States. The fact that J&J had to use that facility to manufacture this vaccine means that there wasn't a lot of other available supply in the United States. This facility, this emergent plant was intended to be part of a warm base of preparedness for something like this. The, the facility was actually first invested right. in as part of preparations for a pandemic flu. But what it shows is that we weren't as ready as we needed to be for this pandemic generally, because we don't have a lot of excess manufacturing capacity around the country. Right. Dr. Gottlieb, let me, let me just get to, again, kind of a personal question here, but I think it's on the minds of a lot of people. I have the vaccine, but there are all these variants out there. And I think people want to know, are they protected from the variants through the vaccine? Yeah, look, we don't have a definitive answer to that question yet. So far, the clinical evidence that we've seen is that the vaccines are protective against these new variants. Where you ha do have very direct clinical data with some of the vaccines, you do see a slight decline in the protective value of the vaccines against these new variants. But because the vaccines on the market that we have are so protective against coronavirus, even a small decrease in efficacy, you still have a very protective vaccine. In experimental evidence in the laboratory, when you look at whether or not the antibodies generated by the vaccine will neutralize some of these new variants, you do see a decline. But that's in the laboratory. In the real world where we've gotten clinical data, we don't, we don't see that. We don't see a big effect. Now, that said, I don't think we're doing a very good job looking for this in the real world data. I think this is something that CDC should be very focused on, trying to sequence people who, who present with infection, either who were vaccinated or people who had prior infections get mm. reinfected to figure out whether or not people are getting reinfected with these new variants. So far, we're not seeing that on a wholesale basis, so we don't think it's happening. But we don't have really good ways to detect this, like what the British are doing, where they're following thousands of people who were previously infected and or vaccinated to see if they get reinfected. Final point in the clinical trials, because we're continuing to follow these patients, 
As you noted, I'm on the board of Pfizer. Pfizer recently put out six-month data from their original clinical trial. And again, you're not seeing real evidence that people are getting infected after getting vaccinated in a proportion that you wouldn't expect. I mean, some people will get infected after vaccination, a small number. You're not seeing it out of proportion to what we would have expected. Yeah, Dr. Gottlieb, it's Morgan. And you just touched on something key I I was going to home in on with you, and that is reinfections, particularly of folks that have had COVID before, and maybe now they're catching a new variant. You're starting to see that uh, in the midst of this talk, from some at least, that we could be poised for a fourth wave, even as we see millions and millions of Americans uh, get their doses, get their vaccines right now. I wonder how you see that uptick, depending on the data that that we look at and depending on the location in the country, how you see that uptick um, materializing right now and whether whether it really is cause for concern. Yeah, look, I think that question about reinfection is really a critical question. So if we look at places where there's a surge of infection, Michigan, Minnesota, Massachusetts, if you want to explain that, you would explain it by saying, well, B117 got into those places early. Those are colder climates that aren't really benefiting from a seasonal effect like the South is right now. A lot of the infection that you're seeing is in younger people. Actually, the biggest component of the new infections in Massachusetts is 10 to 19. So it's probably a reflection that they reopened schools and social networks that were sheltered from the virus for a very long time now are being exposed to it. And mobility is way up. People are clearly moving around. They're not you know, adhering to the public health guidance as much as they were. That altogether can explain why you're seeing an upsurge in those parts of the country. The, the question that we have that we, we don't know, have an answer to that could also explain it is that a lot of people who had the infection previously are now getting reinfected to, with these new variants. Now, we're not seeing that. The places where we have good data, like New York City, where they're doing a lot of sequencing and we're looking at who's getting these new variant infections, we don't see people who've been previously infected in a wide basis getting reinfected with these new variants. But the bottom line is we're not doing a very good job right now looking for this. So there is a possibility that the CDC could be missing this, that people could be getting reinfected and we just don't know it. Now, I don't think that's the case. I think based on the data we have, we would probably start to see it, but you can't be certain right now. So, you know, I would explain the, um, the upsurges that we're seeing the way I explained it, that this is a combination of the factors that I laid out, the variants, the seasonal effect, the schools reopening, people moving around more. And I don't think it's going to be the start of a true fourth wave. I think that this is going to be regionalized outbreaks, and hopefully we get beyond this as we vaccinate more. Hey, doctor, help help us with this. And, and it's a question I think that maybe some families were even grappling with yesterday. Uh, parents uh, who are vaccinated or getting vaccinated, who invariably should feel comfortable, as we've discussed, with other adults who've been vaccinated. Uh, and yet so many of us have kids. And when you bring kids together uh, who are not going to be vaccinated, what you do, this is clearly going to be an issue that I imagine we're going to be grappling with uh, through the summer and perhaps even through most of next fall, it sounds like, depending on when children uh, get vaccinated. I'm talking about kids under the age of 16. Uh, some, you know, it, I think Israel is now doing it uh, for, for 12 and up. But what's, what, what are you thinking about kids and how, how that should play, especially when you have adults on one side vaccinated, kids not? Well, look, the kids are clearly less vulnerable to the infection, but less vulnerable doesn't mean that they're not vulnerable. And we do see some kids getting sick from coronavirus. I think that this is really the key question. People who are vaccinated can feel that they're, they're far less likely to get seriously ill. They're less likely to get the infection, less likely to transmit the infection. That's what we see in the real world evidence right now. But if you're around vulnerable people, there's still a possibility, even if you're vaccinated, that you can be asymptomatic and shed the virus and transmit the infection to that vulnerable person. 
So I think this is a reason why when you're still in a high prevalence environment, this is really the top reason why someone who's vaccinated should still be cautious. If you're going to be around someone who's vulnerable to the infection who isn't vaccinated, you should wear a mask. You should be prudent. Now, obviously, you're not going to do that in your, with your family and with your kids when you're in the household. But it is a reason why if you're vaccinated and you're going out in a high prevalence environment where there's a lot of infection, still be careful. I think people who are vaccinated, who are circulating in a very high prevalence environment should still be wearing a mask, especially if they know they're going to be in contact with someone who's vulnerable. As infection levels come down this summer, and they will come down, I think that we've delayed, you know, the moment when this infection is going to start to disappear, but we haven't forestalled that opportunity. As they come down, then I think people who are vaccinated can take you know, take more, um, right. less precautions when they're out in public can go around. Without okay, Scott, I'm going to make it more complicated. Uh, you, I, I think you were against uh, indoor play dates for kids back in the day. Um, if the parents are vaccinated, how do you feel about indoor play dates? Look, the parents being vaccinated uh, reduces the risk that the children are have the infection, that they're asymptomatic or symptomatic for that matter, because a lot of the infections that we see on contact tracing actually are kids who get infected from their parents, not kids who are getting infected in school. And that's what we see when we look at schools, outbreaks in schools in North Carolina, for example, where they have very good data. So if you're, if you're interacting with families where the adults have been vaccinated, there's less, it's less likely that the kids are going to have the infection. So look, I'm reintroducing activities with my children, but I'm doing it, I, I hope, in a prudent way, where I'm still keeping the social network somewhat defined. You know, I'm, I'm being mindful about how many people they're interacting with and who they're interacting with. So, for example, a lot of their play dates have been with kids who are in their class. Why? Because that's their social pod. They're already exposed to that social pod, so we're trying to keep the interactions within that defined pod. Uh, quickly, Dr. Gottlieb, the evolution of therapeutics to treat COVID. Um, obviously, you've seen the antibody treatments uh, and the like. I know you wrote over the weekend about the fact that we need pills. Uh, Ridgeback and Merck are developing a pill right now. How should we think about the therapeutic landscape? Look, I think this could be the game changer for the fall that no one's really expecting. If we can get a small molecule drug that's an inhibitor of viral replication and isn't dependent upon targeting these surface proteins that seem, seem to be changing. If we can get a drug that works through a completely new mechanism like a Tamiflu for coronavirus, that's really a, a potential game changer, especially if it's largely safe. It can be used on an outpatient basis. I think we will get such a drug. I don't know that we're going to have it in time for the fall. There's a number in development that look promising, including that drug that Merkin licensed from Ridgeback. But this isn't a virus that should be hard to drug. So I think eventually we will have a small molecule inhibitor of viral replication in this setting. Dr. Gottlieb, three journalists ask you questions. Three journalists ask you personal questions. Uh, thanks for <laughs> fielding them all. I'm sure you're going to get off, the, get off uh, TV and have 10, 10 calls from your friends on these same issues every day. And, and you do it so well. Thank, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Morgan Brennan and Steve Leisman for sitting in today. Tune in every day, Monday to Friday, on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 